Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted to welcome David Neal, who is the Animal Welfare Director at Animals Asia Foundation for close to 20 years. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Sabrina. Really, really lovely to be with you. Yes, very much looking forward to this podcast and hearing about the work of Animals Asia and, of course, many of the other activities that you're involved in. But we always like to start the podcast with a short story, like perhaps an early connection to animals or living with animals. So perhaps you can start with that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I was like, you know, a lot of kids, um, you know, we had a lot of animals in our in the house when we were young. Um, obviously, you know, the usual kind of pets um and that was and that obviously was something which connected me closely to 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 animals but i think um you know i think one of the sort of the things which really got me into what i do was for, from a young age i suppose was was from an experience which i had when i actually first went to 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 spain actually to mallorca when i was a young um i was about 13 14 years old with my with my parents um, and that was actually something which has now stuck with me and something which I now campaign on. And that was the the use of um, animals as photo props. And I, this experience of mine, kind of, I remember it just because I was shocked by it when I saw it. I saw somebody with a chimpanzee, a young chimpanzee, which was obviously being used to, for people to pay to have their photograph taken with. Um, and this is back in the sort of early 19, um, mid 1980s. Um, and I really wanted to do something about it. Like I was, I was driven to do something about it to, to, you know, to get photographs and then to take, to send those photographs out to as many people as I could possible to actually get somebody to take this art, to take this issue on and do something. Now, I never know whether that did happen. I know, you know, those sort of things don't happen now, uh, particularly with chimpanzees anyway in, in Spain, but they are happening in other parts of the world. And I, and I always kind of go back to that because I think they're the sort of things which I'm now campaigning on in other countries in 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 asia and you know you can see how the change has happened in countries in europe where this used to be something but that is an experience it's not a not a positive one it's more of a negative one but it's something which resonates with me i guess in that you know there were lots of people around on that day and nobody else seemed to be too worried about this this poor chimpanzee except me and that's kind of how i've continued to to live my life i guess Yes, thank you so much for sharing that story. And it's so important to share, you know, positive stories or, of course, the ones where we need to shed light on that we need to, you know, be the voice for. And uh, I also have memories of, you know, seeing animals, whether they were African greys or, you know, very big snakes, constrictor snakes, and um, a small tiger I saw once also here in Spain. And um, yeah, and it's so important to, whether it's taking photographs, there's special apps for it and organizations, and of course, you know, the work that you're doing, where you can actually reach out and, um, and be that actor for change. 
and uh, and really connect to other people about why you know this is not in the best interest of the animal and how can we have this approach of care and respect so thank you so much for sharing such an important story you're welcome Yes, I was wondering, you know, everybody has different ways of getting into this work. And so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background and your studies and and some of your work in river restoration. Yeah, early on, as I say, you know, sort of a teenager, then it was very much kind of my mindset was very much animal related in terms of, you know, obviously the, 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 issue, the incident there with the chimpanzee that sort of exposed me to some of the animal welfare organizations of which were actually looking to protect animals. Um, and then and then I kind of sort of drifted more towards sort of environmentalism, I think, you know, it was again, sort of the, the mid 80s into the 90s, you know, the the environmental issues were obviously becoming to the forefront publicly. And I, my studies, there wasn't any sort of studies available then like there are now in terms of animal welfare science or, you know, not so much of the animal behavioral um, science, which is certainly you know uh, available to people now. And so I went down more of sort of the ecology and the environmental route and, and ended up studying that in at university and that kind of then took me slightly away from the sort of animal protection animal welfare side of things and I was I was continued to do that sort of on a voluntary basis obviously sort of you know working in the local um, RSPCA um, dog shelters and things but from a sort of a more of an academic point of view then I was definitely moving towards sort of environmentalism um, and that lasted for a fair few years obviously I you know I finished my um, undergraduate degree then went on to do a postgraduate in conservation biology and then went on to work for an organization which was involved in river restoration as you as you mentioned and so uh, I then spent quite a few years, you know, learning about obviously, you know, how to how to restore some of the rivers in the UK. Then, you know, the, the, the back in the sort of 60s, a lot of the rivers had been culverted. So they've been concreted over, you know, and the habitat had been lost. And now we were back into a period where, you know, people were looking back saying, well, you know, now we need to restore some of that lost habitat. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of um, uh, actually a coalition of organisations and I was sort of heading up that coalition which was trying to look at this one particular river catchment and trying to get action and money into that into, into that catchment to try to recreate some of the natural habitats which was there which was a, a really fascinating and really worthwhile project and then and then, and part of that then was to actually do the survey techno techniques in terms of what was there or what wasn't there and i was involved quite heavily then in surveying for water voles which are a species in the uk which had been in in major decline at the time uh, mainly due to you know all kinds of issues pollution obviously the loss of habitat but also um the the release of mink into the into the local areas where they were and they were being outcompeted and 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 by by the mink so that actually then sort of the two worlds then started started to come together sort of the animal welfare world and the and the environmental world because what what resulted from that was a, a quite a large sort of survey of this catchment area which was plotting where there were mink but there wasn't water voles and of course then it comes into you know a management decision to actually say well okay we need to get rid of the mink here in these areas so that the water voles can can actually repopulate these areas and that's I think that was the point where I realized that I wasn't really cut out for conservation and, and environmentalism because 
you know, I realised then that I would be making decisions which were impacting individual welfare of animals and, and actually, in this case, the mink, because it would meant of actually of catching and killing mink um, on a quite a large scale to ensure to try to repopulate the area for waterfalls. And that just me- just made I realised then that it just it, that was a decision I didn't want to be part of and I didn't want to make. And, and I actually decided then that was time for me to kind of rethink what I wanted to do. But it was interesting how I kind of went through that to the you know to that process to then sort of come to that sort of dilemma and you know i knew that was going to happen it wasn't just my decision it was a, a whole group of people in the wildlife trusts and things who were making those decisions and that project carried on but i didn't feel comfortable being part of that and decided then to sort of drop out a little bit and try and find out where I was comfortable working, working, uh, what, what area I really wanted to work in, which, you know, obviously was more about animal welfare and animal protection and, and working with individual animals more so than on the bigger sort of species level. Yes, thank you for sharing that story and also, you know, different ways of how we get into our professions or our roles and, you know, that also by working in different fields or in diff- on dof- different topics, we can learn about, you know, obviously the interconnectedness, so, but also what is it that we are called to do or that we want to do and, you know, acknowledging that there are sometimes parts of, of the work that is not necessarily something that we want to do, even though we know that it might be necessary. And um, I know that, of course, you know, and you know, too, there's lots of uh, discussion around compassionate conservation, about really looking at individuals as we make species decisions. But uh, it's, I also have done some different jobs in the past where I have to say, well, I would be happy doing this, I would be comfortable doing this, but I'm not comfortable doing that. And like that, you know, we all have to find our ways. And I'm, and I think it's so important to share them that we all have to make these decisions, what it is that we can make, where we can make a difference. So thank you so much for, for doing that. No, you're welcome. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned something there with compassionate conservation. And I think at the time, again, you know, we're talking about now sort of the mid 90s, then, you know, compassionate conservation hadn't, wasn't something which was being discussed in, in mainstream, at least. And so now you look at it and you think, well, yes, now there are other avenues to go down. You know, when these dilemmas sort of happen, then you can turn to people, you know, and say, well, why don't we bring people together to talk about maybe a more compassionate solution, you know, to try and to fix the fix this problem and I think that is exciting that that whole kind of area of 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 research has developed that is very much looking at compassionate conservation and trying to bring these two sort of um these two fields closer together so yeah it's unfortunate that I wasn't aware of it or it just wasn't didn't it wasn't really there at that you know back in the early 90s yes no thank you so much for pointing that out and it also really sheds a light on how old we are and how long. We are. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. So, does, yeah. That is a very important point uh, you make. And I certainly hadn't heard about compassionate conservation in the 90s. So, and that's that's another really, you know, important. I realized that, you know, depending on yeah when we work 
or and where we work, you know, depends very much on what sorts of decisions we make and and maybe we come back to them or maybe we say, okay, that's a great development, but I'm still most comfortable over here. So yes. but it's it's an evolution. And uh, yeah, we're talking 30 years ago. So yeah, long, long time. And, you know, you have done a lot of different uh, traveling in Asia and South America. So perhaps you can give us some examples of what you did and, and how you mm-hmm. traveled. Yeah, well, I think um, it, the travel then sort of came about because I was sort of trying to find out where I really wanted to try to go professionally um, after this sort of, you know, this dilemma had kind of hit me. And um, so I decided, yes, to do, you know, what, what people generally do, maybe a little bit younger, sort of straight out of university, with it, was to travel and just to spend some time visiting different countries and, and also, you know, visiting some different projects while I was while I was traveling as well. And that kind of landed me firstly, um, well, towards the end of my travel, it landed me in South America, which was a really fascinating experience because I ended up working at a, a wild animal rescue sanctuary there for, for, for some months. Um, which was looking at animals which were being rescued from the illegal pet trade in South America and also from some circuses which had closed down as well. So that was a really interesting time and to be involved in that. But prior to that, and then and what actually led to where to what I do now, I'd spent quite a bit of time in Asia and in particular in Vietnam. Um, and whilst traveling through Vietnam, then again a, another one of those sort of experiences happened where I I saw a, a a bear and a bear cub which were in a cage literally on the street in in a in a place called Ninh Binh. So you know I was in it. We were in a hotel and you know we were coming out to go out for the day and you know and then suddenly you know we, we're walking down the street and there there are this bear and bear cub you just don't expect to see. And so obviously I inquired about you know why they were there and you know what was happening and and that was where I then learned actually from the hotel that that bear farming was something which was happening in in um, Vietnam and that those bears were likely to be transported to or from a bear farm and and that just horrified me because I'd never heard of this at all I'd never heard of this the, the, the industry whatsoever and that actually led me then to to Animals Asia and it was it was actually via Born Free Foundation and Virginia McKenna who I'd been in touch with before I left to travel because I was saying that whilst I was traveling I wanted to go and visit various places and zoos etc and were they interested in you know just learning about anything that I found out which obviously they were and so I I went back to them and said look you know this situation with the bear has just happened and they actually said okay well actually we know somebody who's actually just started an organization to actually look at that issue in in China and that was Jill Robinson and, and Animals Asia who set up in 1998 and this was just a couple of years later and so yeah it was it was strange how that kind of happened and I ended up being in touch with Jill and and just sort of telling her about that situation she then obviously said to me look you know if you're interested in helping animals asia then get in touch and it took a little while because obviously then i was still traveling and went off to south america for a while but when i returned back to the uk then i was i was i was then in touch with animals asia and they wanted me then to help them to to develop the organization in the uk so i actually then spent the first this was now 20 years ago when I started with Animals Asia and I actually spent about the first eight years of that just publicizing the work of Animals Asia in the UK so we it was a very new newly registered charity in the UK then 
and really just needed somebody to be out there giving talks, meeting with supporters, meeting with meeting with influential groups to try to get the name out and to try to build a supporter base. So that was really what I did. I, you know, I, I learned obviously all about the issue of bear farming and what Animals Asia were doing to try to put an end to that. And then just wanted to be that be that voice for those bears, I suppose, and just got out there as much as I possibly could and traveled up and down the country as much as I as, as you know, as much as it was possible to talk to to everybody and anybody about this issue and, and develop the support that was needed. Yes, thank you so much. And and uh, we're very fortunate also to have actually a few people from Animals Asia on our podcast, including uh, Jill, episode 53. So we'll link to that. So in case people haven't heard that story yet, they can they can listen to that too. And, you know, before we dive deeper into the work that you're doing, can you tell us a little bit about, because it's not just bears and uh, elephants and other, you know, wildlife and of course, you already mentioned um, working out in river restoration and other animals, but you actually also work with, um, if you like, uh, farm animals, farming animals, and uh, specifically um, the Hen Welfare Trust and farm animal welfare. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about that work and your volunteering as a political co- uh, coordinator. Yeah, sure. Again, I, th- I think this was sort of at the time when I was in, when I was mainly based in the UK and, you know, and, and doing a lot of the traveling. And then, you know, it was also a time where I'd been, I mean, I'd been vegetarian since I was about, I think, 11 or 12 years old, but it taken me quite a, 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 a long time to actually be, to be vegan. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd recently become a vegan. And so I was looking, I was, very conscious, more conscious about sort of farm animals and and their welfare as well. And I wanted another outlet, I suppose, in terms of helping farm animals because Animals Asia was really is really wild animal focused and which you know obviously is 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 great but the farm animal welfare side of things just just was something which was in the back of my head I suppose I wanted to do more on and so from a voluntary point of view I actually found the British Hen Welfare Trust which um, is an organization which works with um, egg farmers to rehome what they call spent hens, so hens which they come at the end of their production cycle, which is normally after a couple of years of, of, of laying eggs, you know, can still maybe have, you know, four, five, six years of life left. Um, they just don't, they're just not economically viable to keep on farms because they start to produce less eggs. Um, so generally, you know, the majority of those end up going to slaughter. And the British Hen Welfare Trust was set up to try to at least provide homes for those hens. So, you know, to work again, not particularly criticising the farmers, but actually just to say, look, you know, we want to try to give a life to these hens. And so I like that kind of approach. It was very much kind of collaborative and worked alongside the farmers. And, you know, yes, they were also trying to trying to encourage people to to buy free range more so than caged hens so there was some sort of you know campaign in there as well but ultimately you know it was a quite a a positive relationship that they had with the farmers and so so yeah for a number of years I worked with them and you know that mainly involved actually being on the ground you know collecting hens from farms and then and then you know distributing them to people that wanted them as sort of backyard hens and that obviously then I I had some I'd done some 
campaigning in Westminster and in Brussels as part of my work with Animals Asia and some of the things that we were trying to sort of to get people interested in from an, from an international footing politically. And so then I, I did a, a little bit and it wasn't much, but it was a little bit of actually sort of political coordinating then with the British Home Welfare Trust, who were really looking towards things like production method labelling, on you know, trying to get more information out to consumers to say where the products that they were buying were coming from. Again, trying to encourage people to maybe look towards buying more sort of products which contain free range um, hens eggs more so than caged hens eggs so yeah it was a it's, that was an interesting time and unfortunately my job with animals asia changed well not unfortunately it, it changed for the better for me but it just meant i just the time that i had to continue to do that unfortunately kind of disappeared but it was a you know it was a really good thing to do and the british hen welfare trust has gone on from strength to strength now it's a much bigger organization now you know um it still does as far as i'm aware it still does some some sort of campaign work um but yeah it's you know it's rehoming many hundreds of thousands of of hens to to people and giving them a giving those individuals a chance of a second life after being on the farm so you know definitely worth an organization if anyone's in the UK worth looking looking up wonderful thank you so much and you know we'll definitely make a link available with this podcast so people can look up the British Hand Welfare Trust and uh, yeah and sometimes you know we spend many years and sometimes we spend many months or a day uh, it doesn't really matter but it's uh, really great these stories of wanting to help, you know, when we can and uh, and continuing, especially also for animals that are often invisible um, and not, you know, thought about necessarily a lot compared to perhaps wild animals uh, in, in zoos or in sanctuaries. So it's really, really good to bring attention to all animals in all kinds of systems. And, you know, a lot of your work also uh, revolves around uh, Asia for animals. So <laughs> to really, you know, in the very beginning, I really had to really look closely at the emails getting into my inbox um, because I was like okay wait a second animals Asia Asia for animals um, so <laughs> tell, us, tell us more about Asia for animals and uh, it's just such a wonderful um, yeah you tell us all about it yeah, I, it is confusing, unfortunately, and I think you know, with hindsight, we may have we may have wanted to maybe call it something slightly different to to distinguish the two. But yes, it's oh, I love it. I it, love it. I just get used to it. <laughs> it. It does cause mass confusion. Um, yeah, I mean, Asia for Animals was is actually started as more of a, a conference um, back in around about two thousand and one, I think, or two thousand and two was the first conference. And really, again, it was all the different organisations that are working in Asia, including in Animals Asia and other international organizations, but also some of the, the, the locally um, uh, local organizations in various countries that sort of wanted to bring people together in a conference and just obviously discuss, you know, all kinds of issues, campaign issues, fundraising issues, uh, marketing issues, all those kind of things that organizations need to discuss between themselves. And so the conference started to happen every two years. And obviously I was in, involved in that. Animals Asia were very heavily involved in that. And at the end of the conference, then there was always sort of quite a lot of discussion about, you know, things that really we needed to come together and work on as, as, as sort of collaborate on as much as possible. But then as, as, as always with things like this, you know, everybody goes back into their own, you know, offices and countries and projects and very rarely did did that collaboration happen for the first few years so it actually was animal different organizations organized the conference every two years and it was animals asia's turn to organize it in chengdu in china in 2011 
And so I was part of the organizing committee for that. And one of the things that I wanted to get from that was actually to have more collaboration between organizations outside of the conference. So in this sort of 18 months to two year gap, you know, I was aware we were all sort of coming together and maybe we hadn't seen each other for 18 months or two years, you know, organizations from the Philippines, organizations from Malaysia and Thailand and Indonesia that just didn't have the chance really to connect easily. You know, I wanted to find a way of actually keeping us all connected during that sort of outside of the conference period rather than sort of all coming back saying oh yeah you know we talked about doing this but you know yeah unfortunately it never got off the ground so that's why i set up the asia for animals coalition which was very much a kind of like okay well this is now a body of organizations who anybody can come to and say i have an issue in my country might be it, whatever it is with regards to animal welfare. It might be, I don't know, there's a new dog management policy in, you know, somewhere in in, in Malaysia that organizations in Malaysia are, are opposing, but actually they could really do with support from organizations all across Asia. And so they could come to the coalition and say, will you help draft letters and, and support for this? And will you, you know, help our local campaign? And so that's really what it was. And it and and that it was that really for a few a number of years in that it was sort of keeping that bridge between the conference of, of issues we discussed, discussed in conference with then the opportunity to actually put something into practice with this body of organisations behind it. So it just sort of gave clout to really to grassroots organisations that maybe were campaigning locally when they could have this coalition of organisations and, you know, often international organisations that were then saying, yes, we support this campaign. And it's really grown from there. I mean, I, I that it went on more as sort of a letter writing, you know, information sort of sharing coalition for a number of years. But more recently, then we've been fortunate to, to get some more resources and, and and bring some more individuals on board who have now taken it to another level and you know are now really trying to 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 set up all kinds of sort of working groups which are very specific about certain issues so there's a working group looking at the issues of macaques you know with all kinds of issues of macaques obviously the illegal wildlife trade the farming of macaques for laboratories the, the just the general husbandry for macaques in in zoos and rescue centers all those issues and and now, and and these different working groups have developed. So there's another one which is looking at elephants and use of elephants in in tourism, which is something which I'm uh, directly involved in. There's a farm animal welfare coalition which is looking at farm animal welfare and bringing organisations across Asia together on looking at farm animal welfare issues. And there's there's another one developing which is looking at companion animal issues. And and so I think from very small beginnings, the coalition has now developed almost into an organization of its own and has actually got a sort of a program of work, which it's doing now, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, that's something which I'm not as heavily involved in it now because obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I still have my own work to do, but I'm very proud to see how that's developed. And it's obviously something that was very much needed. And it really does help to keep all of the organizations in Asia informed about what each other are doing and really you know and have that spirit of collaboration as much as possible and and bringing bringing organizations together on specific issues yes absolutely it was really wonderful to um, be part of the conference earlier this year in april which was actually done online so perhaps you can share a little bit about uh, that event yeah, well, as you say, this this year, obviously, as most organisations have had to do, then the conference went online and this was the first time it had been done online. And so, yes, it was a little bit of a, you know, let's just 
throw it out there and see what happens. But yeah, it was very successful, I'm glad to say. I mean, up until then, as you know, you attended some of the previous conferences, you know, it always been in country. And so it's moved around a lot. It's been it's been in um, Singapore, it's been in Hong Kong, it's been in Indonesia, it's been in Nepal, it's in the Philippines, it's been in, in many Asian countries and, and purposefully trying to get it, you know, so it moves around as much as possible so that advocates in those countries can access the, co- the, the conference as easy as possible. But yes, this year, obviously, just it had to go online due to the COVID situation. And yeah, I think, it, as you say, it was, it was really good. It really had some incredible speakers, um, really, really informative. And um, yeah, hopefully, you know, it's something which has actually been the springboard for us to do more online workshops of a smaller level for these sort of individual coalition groups. So we recently held, a, in July, we held a, a, a workshop for the Macaque Coalition. So it was all people interested in Macaque issues. And that's going to happen again now in December. And those, those are now going to happen every six months. Um, and then we've, we've there's a, um, just in a couple of weeks time, actually, there's a farm animal welfare coalition workshop, which is happening in and around sort of World Animal Day. So I think the the event back in April for the um, the online conference was a bit of a test to see how it goes. It was very successful. Um, so, yeah, I think you know, we may well be back there again, doing that again. I'm not entirely sure just as yet uh, when where you know, when we will all be able to travel again back to a conference. It certainly doesn't replace the conference you know i think it's the conference the physical conference is really important you know it's 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 a there's a proper sort of networking opportunity at a, at a physical conference which you can't you can't really replace online but it certainly you know was 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 something which we we i think we can probably have both of them happening rather than just having to say one or the other Yes, absolutely. I I only attended one in in uh, Kathmandu, and I really really enjoyed that. It was such a great learning opportunity and sharing and seeing you know so so many different people and organizations, all you know, and and that's also what I really like about it that it's farm animals and specific species and topics. So yeah, it's it's really great, and I hope. obviously traveling to the countries is wonderful and yeah that combination of perhaps online and in person that's that's really valuable so we can all continue learning uh whether we can go or not and uh, still connect so Yeah. yeah so you and i are recording this podcast in in 2021 and yeah we are still in covid uh situation and at you have written a guest blog on how to prevent the next pandemic. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. I think um, this was sort of quite early on, I guess, in that, you know, in, in during the pandemic. Um, and I suppose this sort of culminates just in some of the, you know, the, the, the my interest as much as anything else in terms of farm animal welfare and and from what I've what I've seen with regards to farm animal welfare. And, you know, even though our work in Animals Asia has been concentrated on other other areas of of animal welfare then you know i've still very much been exposed to some of the issues with regards animal consumption both from a sort of the intensive production the um, pig farms and chicken farms in china and, and vietnam in particular as well as the animal markets which obviously were you know were, were very popular and still are actually very popular for, for many people across asia um, for domestic species like you know um, hens and geese and and, and ducks uh, but also for exotic uh, more exotic species as well and and i suppose 
you know, the pandemic was something which for people that had worked in this field for a number of years was, was obviously of no surprise because, you know, it was obvious that something was going to come out of, of, of either the animal markets or the intensive farming, you know, which was going to have this global impact. In fact, you know, it already had, you know, we'd seen things previously with the SARS, with MERS, um, things like avian flu and uh, African swine fever and things which were coming out from the pig industry. They just hadn't had such a global impact as as obviously the, the, the COVID-19 has had. And so, yeah, I just felt like, you know, it was something that we really needed to try to write about. And I know there are there are others which have you know, many which have which have much more experience than I am, have written about this since and, you know, and are sort of campaigning on this issue specifically now at a higher level. But yeah, it was very much kind of just wanting to say, you know, we really do have to look at what we're doing here because, you know, it's and, and hopefully if anything good comes out of the pandemic, it's really kind of switched people on to these systems of what we're doing to animals and the way that we've been treating them for for decades um, intensively and putting them under this this huge level of stress which is obviously causing them to become ill and obviously then you know leading to to these these new diseases which are which are coming out and we will see more of it you know unless we unless we do something to change the way that we that we raise our animals to, to eat or we change our actual behaviors in terms of our consumption then you know the, we're only set currently at the moment to see more animals being raised for food to meet a growing not just a growing population but a growing demand by the individual person to consume more um, animal protein and that's just a completely unsustainable um situation on, on a number of levels you know just in terms of the land area that we need to be able to do that it's unsustainable but in terms of you know the the environmental impacts obviously now coming to the forefront it's unsustainable and it and it will lead to more disease you know we, i i feel like you know in a sense that humanity has been relatively lucky that you know it's taken this long for for something like this to to impact us globally you know, as you say, there's been other things which have come out of either intensive farming production or animal markets previously, which have had an impact, but nothing quite to this level. And it, 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 I think if we don't do something about it, we will see something, you know, again, either at the same at the same level as COVID or, you know, or, or potentially even worse. So it, we're at a point where this has to be addressed. Otherwise, you know, we, we're just going to, to ignore what has happened to us now and to continue down this line would, you know, would just be absolutely crazy of us. Yes, such an important topic. And there's so much, that, I mean, we could just do a whole podcast on, <laughs> you know, this topic and also, you know, what we are doing to animals, what we're doing with animals. And, you know, from an individual perspective, it reminds me of one of the papers that we published uh, seven years ago. It's titled Eating Animals at the Zoo, where we really talk about, you know, we talk how, about how important it is that we consider the individual animals in the zoo, you know, the wild animals we care for, even the farm animals that are housed at the zoo. But then when we go to the restaurant or to the hot dog stand, we actually mm. eat food from animals that are often, you know, the invisible animals, the animals that... Um, you know, where things happen to them and with them that are really, um, you know, really distressing for them. And, and you know, the work on uh, that we're doing right now on eating to save wildlife, like 
you know, looking at our footprints and looking at what does it mean when we want to eat, whether it's animals or other, um, you know, things that really destroy our environment. So yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast on this topic. So <laughs> including, of course, the things that come from that, uh, whether it's drought or, um, you know, pandemics, diseases that uh, yeah. obviously have changed our world uh, dramatically. But and I do uh, want to highlight, you know, like you say, if there's anything good coming out of it, because, of course, there's been much devastation. Uh, there's been, you know, terrible sorrows and sadnesses, but it is also really important to look at. So what have been our lessons learned and what are the good things that uh, we could take forward and um, and I'm really glad that uh, that you wrote about it and that people continue to write about it. So thank you for that. Mm. So you're right. It it is. We do need to look at that the positives, you know, in terms of what what has come from from such a devastating period of time. So yeah, you know, hopefully we we're setting ourselves onto a new trajectory. And I, you know, there's certainly a lot more discussion just in sort of general public about these issues than there ever was sort of two years ago. So, you know, if, if nothing else, then, you know, they're, they're certainly getting the attention that they need, that they needed to get. And so hopefully things will change. Yes. Yeah. So now we're going to dive even deeper into Animals Asia. And perhaps you can share a little bit about your role and the work that you're doing. Um, whether it's governments, perhaps we, we can start with that. Or, yeah, just to feel free to share what you think um, is best at this moment. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I guess just kind of going back to sort of that timeline, you know, from where I was working with Animals Asia in the UK as a UK based, more somebody who was, was publicizing the work of Animals Asia and helping to build that supporter base. I think it, it, you know, it got to a point that wasn't something which I wanted to do long term. I, you know, I wanted to be much more sort of hands on with with things which are happening within Asia more so than actually, you know, be not. I don't, I don't want to say just the spokesperson because that's a really important important role in all organisations. But you know, I wanted that sort of more hands on, um, practical sort of uh, side of it as well, and and also I. The organization needed to grow and I wasn't equipped to grow the organization from a communications and fundraising point of view. So it also needed to start. We needed to start bringing people on that had a background, you know, and training in those areas. So it, it was a sort of a natural progression, I guess, to sort of me to move away from that and actually to start looking more at some of the issues in Asia that we could start to get involved in. And, and at the time, Animals Asia had, had grown as an organization globally. And, you know, although we started very much specifically looking at this one issue and, you know, and our main focus remains looking at the issue of bears and, and bear farming, as well as um, issues with regards to dog and cats as well. You know, we'd, we'd been exposed to many other wild animal issues and particularly wild issues that were coming out of China with the use of animals in circuses and some of the poor welfare of animals in some of the zoos in China. And this was something which the organisation was beginning to receive a lot of attention or a lot of uh, people were communicating issues to Animals Asia and you know, really wanting us to get involved or do something about this. 
And again, you can sort of look back to maybe 2008, the Beijing Olympics. I think, you know, it brought a lot of people internationally into China. You know, it was a very successful Olympics in, in Beijing. But it also meant that the eyes, you know, there was a lot more eyes on China. And there was a huge number of reports about obviously poor welfare in, in things which were happening. And, and a lot of that, again, concentrated on things like animal circus entertainment and, and poor welfare in zoos. So that was the sort of time we said, OK, well, you know, maybe that's something that Animals Asia can do something about, you know, and we, I actually myself and, and some of the team in China spent quite a bit of time just traveling around China, just visiting some of these establishments, getting a sense of the scale of, of what we were what we were looking at in terms of the circus industry. Um, and the circus industry is huge in China. It's really, really massive and very difficult to tackle. But what we did see was that there was an industry within the zoo system. So all of, not all of the zoos, but a lot of the zoos had circuses that were con they were contracting to work in their zoo as part of entertainment for the visitors. And yet some of those zoos were also, you know, talking about, you know, animal behaviours and environmental enrichment. And there was a real kind of like this just didn't sit well in terms of you know one sense you can see that you as, a, as an organization is really trying to reach out to change in the way that animals are cared for in captivity and yet people can come and then go and see you know a bear on a on a bike and uh, you know a macaque uh, performing various tricks and things and so that was the issue I think we thought well this this is something that has to change if we can't change the circus industry across the whole of China with all the traveling circuses surely the zoos are an area which should be targeted because you know this is this is these are areas which should be for education and for conservation education and, and you know animal welfare education and yet the opposite was happening and I think it just coincided with the point, the same point of view that the China Zoo Association were getting to as well, in that the China Zoo Association have been well established. And yet, you know, they were really wanting to sort of professionalize themselves and professionalize the image of zoos and zookeeping within China, yet were really struggling because all the publicity was, was negative about the use of animals in circuses and things. And so I think the two kind of came together and we ended up sort of publicizing some of the things which were happening both in and outside of the zoos. And that actually, you know, brought us, brought the situation um, to the Zoo Association and the ministry, which is in charge of some of the zoos in China, actually bringing out a directive which said that the zoos could no longer have animals in circuses inside their contracts with circuses inside their zoos. This was back in 2010, 2011. And that was huge because suddenly, you know, we were both on the same trajectory here. We were both saying, look, you know, we understand the circus industry in China is huge. It's going to be a big issue to tackle. But really, the zoos have to take the lead in this in terms of, you know, you're the ones at the forefront of sort of public education and, and, and animal education in the country. And at the moment, you know, it's you're doing you're showing a negative part of, of, of the use of animals. And so we were really pleased that, that that all happened. And many of those circuses since have closed down. So in the last sort of 10 years, then a lot of the zoos which did have contracts with animal circuses to operate inside their zoos have now gone. And those, you know, the circuses of, of uh, the, the circus sort of association with many of the zoos is, is now history. Unfortunately, it still happens with some of the zoos which are outside of this sort of ministerial control. So some of the biggest safari parks are under a different ministry and, and, and it still happens there. But in terms of things like 
Beijing Zoo and Shanghai Zoo and you know the city zoos and, and you know many of the smaller city zoos as well. You know, there it's a it's a it's a history. It's gone. It's they've, they've gone and and that's I think something which you know the zoo association and, and people in China and Chinese zoos are very proud of in that they've managed to sort of turn that around. And in a sense, I feel we help that situation by publicizing it and sort of putting some pressure on as much as you can within China. But that also then got us very much a kind of close relationship with the zoo association. And, you know, and from there, then, you know, we really wanted to just find a way of working together to actually also improve the welfare of animals in the zoos in general. And again, you know, that, that certainly isn't something that I have expertise in, but I wanted to be that kind of connection to basically go out and find people that were willing to come into China and offer advice and support to zoos. And, and yeah, you know, as you, as you can imagine, you know, people were incredibly willing to do so, you know, from around the world and the zoo association were incredibly willing to accept this advice and support as well. So because of that, that positive relationship which had developed, then we ended up where we are now, really. We've been working with, with the Zoo Association for over 10 years, and initially in country in China, so either bringing various species-specific experts in to actually give talks at you know, Zoo Association conferences, as well as actually running workshops on, you know, chimpanzee husbandry or elephant husbandry in in various zoos as well. And welfare has improved, obviously, in, you know, in many of the zoos that we've been working in, um, I'm pleased to say. Um, and then more recently, obviously, we now, once we got to 2020, we had more workshops, in-country workshops planned. And, you know, we, we were in a situation with COVID and, you know, still are. And then obviously we've turned more to online workshops and, and obviously working with yourself now very successfully in terms of delivering workshops on all kinds of species specific issues, as well as other issues, so health and safety issues. And I know, you know, you've recently put one together on conservation education, which will be delivered before the end of the year. Um, and, you know, a very successful partnership now with us and yourselves and the Zoo Association delivering this information to, to exactly where it's needed. Um, and yeah, we're very, we're very pleased with that relationship and how that's going. And we're very pleased to see that the zoos which participate in that have changed dramatically in terms of where they were maybe 10 or 20 years ago to where they are now in terms of having a very much a, an, an animal and a welfare focus more so than, than, than what was happening previously. That's wonderful. And one of the things that really obviously pops out from all these stories here that you've just shared is collaboration, collaboration with all these different people, different organizations in country and of course, you know, in the region and globally, uh, all coming together to, you know, and addressing the issues, highlighting the issues and working together to make changes or to, and changes including, you know, the closing or the discontinuation of certain practices and environments. So that's very, very positive. And it's also those sorts of positive stories that are enforcing, of course, a way forward and also showing what is possible when we all collaborate. And Certainly, Animal Concepts is really delighted to collaborate with the Chinese uh, Association and, of course, with Animals Asia and everybody who is helping us with uh, putting together all these um, online opportunities for learning. So thank you so much for all the work that is being done. And, of course, a big shout out to everybody who has uh, helped us in these online webinars uh, that we're putting together and have put together. Yeah, absolutely. 
So lots more to talk about. Let's see how yeah. about, I'm really interested to hear about animal welfare education in school. And so, you know, when you talked already a little bit about human behavior change and, you know, considering all kinds of animals. So perhaps can we hear a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's that's really become a, a focus of mine in in in, pre, in in the last few years. I think in terms of again, I think for like a lot of people, once you've been working in in this area for a, a number of years and you see improvements, you also, you know, you you sort of step back a little bit sometimes and maybe take a sort of a bigger picture look at what's happening and think, well, you know, what are the causes of some of the issues that we're not being able to address. And I think some of what I found was, and it really came from working with zookeepers in China and, and the, some of the, the administrative teams in China, was that, you know, we were often coming up against a bit of a block about my understanding of animals and maybe somebody else's understanding of animals. And so, you know, when we were maybe saying, well, this needs to happen or this should happen, maybe there was a lack of understanding of why, what the reason was in terms of I'm sort of saying, well, this animal, you know, has these experiences, these emotional experiences, these cognitive abilities, and they are being frustrated, or you know, they're, they're they're being they're not being allowed to express them in this current situation. Yet maybe you know others might be looking at it saying, well, actually, you know, this animal's you know it's 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 relatively healthy, and you know, it's not particularly showing any behavioural signs of stress. So therefore, you know, they didn't really see a need to maybe address that current situation for that animal. And so those are some of the challenges that we've faced when we've come, come across this. And this is, you know, not unique, obviously, to China. But I think I, what I then thought was, OK, we've got all these issues, whether it be, you know, how to care for elephants in a zoo or how to, you know, to, to try to convince people not to go to see elephants performing in a circus or, or to buy bear bile or whatever. And often we'd spend a lot of time talking about the problems. We talk about how bad it is for an elephant to perform in a circus, say, or how bad it is for a bear to be, you know, to be milked of the bile in a, on a bear farm and how, how appalling it is and maybe how cruel it is for that individual. But we don't talk about what those, what, how that animal has evolved to live its life, to be in a better situation, how it lives in the wild and, and you know, and, and what those, what those animals, the, the, that sort of natural behavior is, but also that, those emotional and those cognitive behaviors that those animals have and that was why I really wanted to to sort of widen up this education program so that we weren't really just saying you know it's bad to go to circus because these animals are poorly treated please don't go it was really to say you know this is what a macaque is and this is what a bear is and this is how they've evolved to live in their natural state and this is why, you know, hopefully then people start to think, well, OK, well, I didn't realise macaques were social, you know, and they needed to be with other macaques or, you know, I didn't realise that, you know, they could be so, so they, they, they could problem solve in the way that they are. And they're obviously quite clever individuals, etc. And that would then hopefully get people to think, well, you know, it's really not right with these very intelligent animals, which have got these emotional experiences and these social experiences, you know, to have them, you know, sitting in a cage at a traveling circus and being and being forced to perform. And so it was trying to change it from a different angle, really, just to get people to think about those animals as individuals, 
differently. And that's where the education program really came from. And, and then, you know, we could expand that. It didn't just have to be wild animals. So then obviously, you know, going back to obviously this passion for farm animals as well. And, and you know, we've, we now, our education program really looked at all animals. So it can be hens and pigs and, you know, it can be rats, it can be macaques, it can be elephants, it can be bears and tigers. But it, but really around sort of the themes of, you know, how they would live their life naturally and, and how they would have these experiences. So their emotional experiences, um, the importance of things like the bondings between individuals for social animals. And then in particular, then the, the importance of the mother infant bond for, for, for certain species as well. And trying to really to just talk about the positives of those more so than the negatives. But again, then hopefully getting people to then think and say, well, you know, well, if, if, a, if a mother cow is bonded to her calf, then surely taking that calf away so that, you know, the, the, we can um, milk that cow for, for, for us to consume the milk has to be a bad thing, right? From the cow's point of view, that's not something that's good for her. And, and again, you know, or taking an animal away from its mother in a zoo so that it can be used hand reared and, you know, and used for photo opportunities or something like that. Um, it was really to get people to make that decision for themselves. And that's where that program has come from so that it isn't specifically criticizing the use of animals it's really just giving people more information about how those animals live their life how they experience their life and how they would do experience their life if we weren't using them in the way that we are yes wonderful that is so important is these connections to other animals right asking those questions like who are they you know what matters to them how do they live their lives uh, what do they enjoy? What are they capable of? And really also, you know, we know that especially in today's, you know, overwhelm of information and of course, you know, either reality TV or really, you know, there's plenty of research showing that facts that are a lot more, well, say fake news that is more exciting. We tend to pay attention to that because it is exciting or because, mm. you know, it's more like, and it doesn't have to be, you know, true or real or anything like that. So uh, we have a lot of information to compete with. And also there's a lot of focus on what is wrong in the world or what, you know, is 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 um, going really poorly or what is bad. And so there's, if we just look at what is out there, a lot of our news, what we are bombarded with is not positive. So that's why, obviously I try to stay up to date with what is going on in the world, but I also make a conscious effort to go to positivenews.com and some other yeah. you know, uh, places Absolutely. here, um, you know, the things that are changing, the, the amazing things that people are doing for other peoples, for animals, for the planet. And so connecting people, um, you know, from young ages to older to, you know, the things that matter to others and also in what ways can they help is, is so powerful. So I'm so glad to hear that. And, um, and then also for people to then decide what is it, what I could do in my bubble of influence, right? So I'm really glad mm. that you are sharing um, these stories. And, you know, talk about animal welfare, education in school. Can you talk to us a little bit about like the, the work in the veterinary domain and animal welfare standards? 
Yeah, I mean, this is something which we 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 did more of um, a few years ago within China. Um, we haven't we haven't really been able to do so much more recently. But again, it was similar to working with the Zoo Association in that we worked with the the Veterinary Medical Association um, and in China. Um, and again, it came about because we could see that you know veterinary medicine was still wasn't the, the the practitioners were really coming out of veterinary schools without much understanding of animal welfare and and welfare concepts, and that obviously was leading to to, to maybe some behaviours in the in veterinary surgeries that were having an impact on on the welfare of animals, and so we really wanted to start tackling that. Um, so we we initially started again bringing in veterinary experts and veterinary teaching experts into China, and we did you know quite a lot of veterinary education up in the, some of the bigger uh, veterinary universities, both with lecturers but also with the students, uh, just to try to get that idea and those concepts of animal welfare into the discussion of, of veterinary training. Fortunately, and one of the reasons why we don't get involved in it so much now is that actually the academic bodies have really some of which we introduced into China have actually kind of taken that on on a bigger scale than we have which is great so you know some of the big veterinary universities around the world now are actually involved directly with the veterinary medicine association with exchange or um, trips and you know and conferences and things looking specifically about looking at animal welfare and so you know that's something which us as an organization hasn't needed to be as involved with which which is fine absolutely but is you know is also something which we we were involved in at the start and we're pleased to see how it's grown but yeah it's a it's a similar thing i guess in that you know the the background of the people which have been trained from a veterinary perspective wasn't taken into consideration individuality of animals um, and their experiences and therefore you know practices then wouldn't be as they might be in other countries um, which would which were obviously you know more designed to actually take the the welfare of those animals into consideration when there was things that the, the there was veterinary procedures that needed to be done to them there's still a long way to go um in in those areas and a lot of work to done to do but you know we've definitely seen an improvement in terms of the chinese veterinary medical association sort of working practices and the things that it's now promoting and animal welfare again like it is within the zoo association is now sort of you know the, the concepts are really sort of rippling through all of the sort of policy documents that they produce and and hopefully that leads to you know to better training of, of vets within the country, which will obviously lead to, you know, uh, better practitioners. Yes, exactly. And I love this, you know, example also, because it is really enforcing what you mentioned earlier about, you know, who's, who's doing which job and what are we trained for? And, you know, who, what are my expertise, your expertise, others, and how can we perhaps shed light on something or start to kindle a conversation uh, and a need for you know a particular topic to grow and a particular field to grow and then you know of course um, how that is picked up by others by professionals by experts who are you know taking that to com a completely different level again um, so that that again is is a great great story and a great message in how again we can collaborate and uh, sometimes yeah and it's of course wonderful that's of course a lot of the aim is of course to get people to almost run with the with the ideas right yeah absolutely yeah. sure yeah. yeah so could you talk to us a little bit about you mentioned you know working obviously with schools with veterinarians you know 
the various aspects of, of zoos and circuses and so many other aspects. But can you talk specifically about the illegal wildlife uh, trade and rehab and, and the work in Vietnam? Yeah. And the work yeah. with the government rescue centers. Yeah, sure. From sort of from our work in China, which was obviously more with the government zoos, um, we wanted to look to see whether we could set up a similar program in Vietnam. And, and that was sort of a natural progression for us as an organization. Because Animals Asia had gone from really working with the government in, in China uh, uh, to set up our, our bear sanctuary for former uh, bear farmed bears to actually setting up another sanctuary in Tamdao, in, in Tamdao National Park, north of Hanoi, for the same issue in Vietnam, with agreements with the Vietnamese government to also to house formerly um, farmed bears. So we'd already sort of become a base in Vietnam and set up an established organizations specifically on the bear farming issue. And so now we were working in China with the Zoo Association, it was sort of natural that we would then say, okay, well, this is going well. We want to replicate that in some manner in Vietnam. Now in Vietnam, these the zoos aren't the zoo association is not quite as well as established as it was in China. And we didn't we didn't have any connections there. Um, so we spent a little bit of time sort of trying to work with individual zoos and we had some success, but it was it wasn't it wasn't an easy kind of ride um, to, to begin with. And what we actually found was, you know, there were a lot of government run rescue centers which actually really did need the help and were actually, you know, were very willing to accept help and support, uh, not just from a sort of, you know, a financial point of view, but actually expertise in country in terms of how they should look after some of the animals that, they, that they're rescuing. And the illegal wildlife trade in Vietnam is, 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 is very big, unfortunately. It's, um, you know, it's a, there's, a, there's a huge amount of wildlife which has been taken out of Vietnam and being transited either, you know, through Vietnam up into China or, you know, is being sold within Vietnam. And so there's a lot, unfortunately, there's a lot of confiscations as well. So Vietnam has a very good legal system in terms of tackling the illegal wildlife trade. And there's there's a lot of very good organizations working in Vietnam, one which is um, Education for Nature, ENV, which is a Vietnamese organization, which is, is very good at uh, working alongside the government to ensure that enforcement is happening when there's issues of illegal wildlife which is being found. Um, and, and so a lot of animals are obviously being confiscated by the forest protection departments and then ending up in government rescue centres. And what we then saw, obviously, was that these government rescue centres were very poorly run, um, very little expertise. And obviously the welfare of those individuals was very poor. So although animals have been sort of, you know, taken out of the illegal wildlife trade, then often they were suffering or they were dying at government rescue centres just because people didn't have the knowledge or the resources to look after them. And so we've been, we, we initially work in, in Hanoi, there's the, the biggest government rescue centre in, in Vietnam, the Hanoi Wildlife Rescue center um, we've been working there now for a number of years and really just in sort of capacity building so we've actually we actually have somebody working with us um, who's who has a, a zookeeping background in the UK who now is in is, is working is embedded in the rescue center um, and is helping them with not just things like you know um, diets and and general husbandry but also with design enclosure designs and you know and also veterinary procedures and things like this so 
And that's been happening for a number of years. And we've really seen some really big improvements in Hanoi Wildlife Rescue Centre in those years, not just in terms of the way that they operate, but just in terms of the attitudes of the organisation, the staff which are running the, the centre now, you know, very much animal focused and, and, and are under much greater understanding of animal welfare and that's obviously leading to much greater success in terms of the animals that come in and keeping those animals firstly keeping those animals alive but actually getting them into situations where you know they they can have positive experiences whilst they're in those rescue centers many of those animals do end up getting returned some of those do get returned back into the wild um, so it's not the same as sort of a zoo situation you know you still need to try to maintain some of those sort of wild aspects of those animals knowing that they're likely to or the, the hope is obviously they could potentially go back into the wild but the situation now for animals in 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 Hanoi Wildlife Rescue Centre has changed dramatically in the last sort of 10 years. Again, because you know we've been embedded in there and working alongside them. So and not funding it as in that we, we haven't put money in to build all these new enclosures. The idea actually has been the opposite. It's really to sort of to help them put an argument to the government so that they give them the money to build these enclosures. So yes, we put some money into to help in terms of resource development and things and training. But ultimately, you know, the money's coming from the government and it's been used in a better way to house animals you know, to to improve their their their, um, their welfare and so what we're now doing is extending that within vietnam so we've recently started working in a place called Phong Nha Cabang and their rescue centre, a government rescue centre. Uh, and, and we've got connections with some of the other national parks as well. And so we're hoping to sort of expand this government rescue centre network, really, so that not only are we operating in more centres, but we're training people in those centres who can then help each other out as well as actually then saying, well, maybe you as a centre could be more specialist in certain species. So you as a centre could specialise more in macaques or in, in certain bird species that are caught in the illegal wildlife trade, which allows us then to develop more species-specific enclosures to house those animals. And then another centre could be more specialist in, say, otters or in, you know, in certain primates or whatever, and allows us to then develop those centres, those more specific, more species-specific centres there. And so that's really where we're, it's still a work in progress, and we need to develop that rescue centre network. But it's certainly something which is, you know, is is, is definitely having positive impacts on a lot of the animals which are coming in. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of animals coming in, and that's an area which we're not as involved in, in terms of actually tackling the illegal wildlife trade. There are lots of organisations working on that in Vietnam. Um, and so that isn't something that we get directly involved in. Obviously, we're involved in those discussions around that, but ultimately we're involved in the other end of the welfare of those animals once they arrive at the rescue centres. Yes, absolutely. It's so important because, you know, unfortunately, the illegal wildlife trade is not slowing. There's so many animals of different species and taxa. And, you know, in what ways can we uh, be prepared, you know, to house these animals? Like you say, some of them go back to the wild, but many can't. And in what ways can we then, you know, support the animals and focusing on a specific species and really then, you know, developing better environments for a certain species. Those are all really, really important aspects to consider. 
So I was wondering, we're almost coming to a close to of this particular podcast. And we'll have to probably have you back because there's just so many things to talk about. But uh, we're kind of going, you know, bird's eye view across lots of really, you know, we could have a, a, a podcast on each and every topic you have just brought up. But uh, another really important topic, I think, that I would like to hear more about is about the ethical elephant tourism and uh, mm -hmm. to replace elephant riding. Yeah, sure. I mean, so that's actually now quite a big part of our work, and it's uh, like you say, it's 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 it, we've kind of left it right until the end to to talk about it, um, because there are so many other things that are happening as well. Um, but yeah, that's something which has developed within the recent years, really, and and sort of came out of of our initial sort of discussions with some of the zoos on on welfare um, and that the there's an organization called elephant conservation center that's based in the central highlands in vietnam which came to some of these initial sort of workshops that we we, we ran just on sort of general animal management and enrichment etc and they said to us that they sort of had this remit to to look at the elephant situation the captive elephant situation in vietnam um and could we help them they didn't have any experience in terms of managing elephants but they knew that they were going to get elephants at some point um to from from former riding elephants that to 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 care for and so that got us involved in this issue um in the central highlands and, and we ended up now we ended up obviously going there and, and speaking with the government there and introducing ourselves and getting the relationship with the government which was very important and spending a number of years really just kind of assessing the situation and what we could do and by going there then we saw that this was the sort of central hub of elephant riding tourism in vietnam and again it's not something that we'd really exposed ourselves to previously we didn't have anybody in our organization that had an elephant management background but there was an issue here with you know a small issue in comparison to other Asian countries where obviously countries like Thailand and Myanmar have thousands of elephants. In Vietnam, we, you know, it used to have many, many hundreds of elephants. And as they've died out, it, it went down to around just over 40 elephants. So we could see that this was a manageable issue for us to get involved in without taking on this huge, huge campaign, which we you know would, would, would be looking at thousands of elephants. It was only as we say, around about 40 elephants that actually we needed to do something with. But at the time, you know, five years ago, then they were all being used in elephant riding and elephant riding tourism was 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 gaining in popularity still, particularly within Vietnam, Vietnam nationals, just at the same time as obviously there was a lot of criticism about elephant riding tourism internationally. So there was less international travel, but they were really relying on the local Vietnamese tourist uh, market, more so the international market. So we we needed to do something about this. We wanted to see whether we could help to work with the Elephant Conservation Centre to start tackling this. Then the Elephant Conservation Centre ended up getting um, orphaned elephants. So these were elephants which had been caught in snares in the wild um, and had injuries. So there was a lot of then time working with them on individual elephants that were born wild and were now in captivity. And so they have two elephants, June and Gold, who are now somewhere in the region of about 10 and seven or eight years old, but at the time obviously came when they were very young um, and had certain um, medical issues that needed to be dealt with. So we've worked with them in terms of bringing elephant management experts into country, bringing veterinary experts into the country to help with those specific elephants. But that then also led us to one of the 
places where elephant riding was happening, and that's in the national park, actually called the Yokdon National Park, which is the area where there are the last wild elephants in Vietnam are in this huge national park, and they had three elephants, captive elephants, which people could ride, so people could come to the national park to to learn about wild elephants, but also then to ride these three elephants, and again. It was that kind of like you know this just isn't right. It was like the zoo situation with the circuses, I guess, back in back in the in, in sort of a decade earlier in China. It was like people are coming here to learn about nature, and they're, they're learning that you know we can sort of you know use these animals in the way that we're using them. Uh, they should be learning about the nature of elephants. They should be learning about elephants and and you know what elephants want to do. So, and it, again, it was just at the right time that the Yokdon National Park were also thinking, well, maybe elephant riding doesn't have a future, you know, here in, in Vietnam. And they wanted to change something as well. So we actually decided then to set up the uh, the Ethical Elephant Tourism Programme, which is, we then initially have compensated the Yokdon National Park so that they no longer need to use their elephants for elephant riding. And people can now come to the national park and actually follow the elephants into the forest. So the three elephants, which the national park used to have sort of chained up for people to come and then they do sort of maybe a 20 minute ride around the national park are now in the forest every single day and people can come in and they go with a guide and they trek out into the forest and they just follow the elephants. So they just watch the elephants being elephants, you know, and, and this has been a unique experience in Vietnam and we've been lucky enough now to then bring in other elephants that were that we've contracted other elephants that were being used in from some of the riding tourism and brought them into the national park so they can be part of it as well to extend the number of elephants that people can come in and see and again it's been really really successful not just for the elephants and obviously their welfare has improved dramatically now because they're allowed to be elephants during the day and do everything that elephants want to do in the national park but also you know just from the the general thinking and and of local people in terms of what elephants what what they need to provide for elephants and now actually we're in a position with the with the local regional the provincial government to sign uh, an agreement that you know they will end elephant riding in this province in the coming years and so you know that's moved on quite considerably and again as you say it could be a whole podcast for this to sort of talk about it in depth but ultimately you know we're now in a situation where Elephant riding has gone from being the sort of economic driver, one of the economic drivers for the region. And now they want to turn that into elephant, ethical elephant tourism to bring people in to see elephants in the natural habitat and the natural environment. And they and again, we're working both with the government, with the tour operators, as well as the owners of the elephants to to try to bring that to reality. So, you know, we've 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 always been clear that this wasn't a campaign to end elephant riding as such you know we weren't going to be putting people out of work because people knew we know that people needed those the, the riding the money that came in from riding you know, you know people needed that so their their source of income we wanted to give them another source of income and that's really where we're at now that transition period is happening and actually Again, you know, COVID's happened and tourism, you know, has pretty much come to a standstill in, in, in Vietnam like it has everywhere else. And so, you know, a lot of those people have realised, you know, that they, you know, they, they really do need to look towards other forms of income as well. And we're hoping that as tourism sort of develops again, then we can really sort of start to promote the ethical elephant tourism side of things more so than obviously people coming to actually ride the elephant. So, yeah, we're in a, we're in a very 
positive situation down there now, which we weren't in sort of five or six years ago, with people really working towards actually establishing these new ethical elephant tourism models. And, and that being an economic driver for the region, providing for the local community, which, you know, it kind of ticks all the boxes that we wanted to, I'm pleased to say. Yes, congratulations to all involved in this whole process of change and, of course, dialogue and respect and and really, you know, working together and understanding and also, you know, the elephants as, as a stakeholder, right? Because often the animals are not necessarily in the way, like you say, to be elephants and do what they want to do and who they are. And, uh, and at the same time, of course, acknowledging, you know, culture, tradition, long histories of being with elephants and, you know, the livelihoods of people that depend on it. And in what way can we work that all stakeholders, you know, are having, you know, their, in, in a way, their um, needs and their preferences um, really looked at and, and acknowledged. So, and that's that's a that's an amazing, you know, collaboration and journey together. I'm sure. So, yeah, and, yeah like yeah. You, say, you know, we'll, we'll especially you know as this is developing. I would love to have you or others involved back to hear more about you know, the specifics also on, you know, how do you start communications? How do you have those dialogues and all that? Because, you know, there's there's much to this in detail and time and patience and trust building and so on uh, for these things to change. But thank you so much for this initial really positive story. And we always like to end the podcast on a story that is that is positive or very close to your heart um, something that, uh, or welfare, well-being, achievement, anything of your choice. So perhaps you you are willing to share one last story with us. Yeah, sure. I, I guess I I'll probably stick with the elephants again. In in um, in that, you know, some of the individuals, obviously, that we've now come into contact with just seeing how they've changed over time of being with us. And unfortunately, the elephant which I took and talk about is, is, is unfortunately passed away earlier this year. And she was an elderly elephant called Hanon. Um, and when we first saw her, she was in a really quite a poor state, unfortunately. Again, she was in her, in her later years, so she was possibly around about 60 years old. She'd been used for elephant riding for many, many years. Um, unfortunately, hadn't been treated uh, too well. Um, and it was just one of those situations. There are lots of elephants all over Southeast Asia that are in need of help. But again, you know, you have to have this, you, you have this personal connection with some because of incidents sometimes that you see and you know we were we were um with her at an elephant camp when we saw her being very badly treated and we just made the decision there that you know whatever we would do then this particular elephant had to be one that we that we managed to to remove from elephant riding and we did you know it took us a little while we negotiated with the owner and eventually you know they they we, we came to an agreement to to remove her from where she was and to bring her into the national park and i think the difference in the in the coming years that that you know the, she had nearly four years with us um, the difference in her and her personality really came out. 
And, you know, I, that's just something which will never go away. Like she became an elephant, you know, she wasn't able to be an elephant and she became an elephant. And actually, you know, she she went one step further, really, in that she she ended up associating with a, a young wild male elephant in the region who um, was sort of sticking around near some of the near some near the tour, near the national park headquarters. And for some time, you know, she really was almost rewilded because you know she she would spend you know weeks and weeks out with this this male elephant and they would be sort of wander off into areas which we couldn't follow because it was too dangerous for the for her mahout to follow um and then eventually you know he would go off further and she would be she, when she would be located often she would you know, go back to where what she knew and go towards some of the farms. And, you know, we'd end up getting a call from a farmer to say there's an elephant that's about to destroy their rice crop and we would just go and, and bring her back again. But it always, it, it felt like the right thing to do to give her the freedom that she'd never had, you know, like she had this, she had these years where, and months of months of time where she was a true wild elephant she didn't have to come back into a place every single night you know where we needed her to be so that she was there for the tourism program in the next morning she was just out there sleeping out in the national park she developed a social bond with a wild elephant you know which we couldn't we couldn't have dreamed of really um and yeah i suppose that's the that's the that's the, the story for us or for me that's the one that i think of right now in that unfortunately as i say she was she was an elderly elephant and she died in april of this year again you know natural causes there wasn't any particular incident and we knew that she wouldn't live you know for too long but but you know her last four years of her life were pretty much spent as close as possible living the life of a, of a wild elephant and you know we're very proud to 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 be able to have given her that time and you know hopefully if we can get anywhere close to that with some of our other elephants then we've really achieved something beautiful thank you so much dave for this beautiful beautiful touching story and yeah, I mean, how amazing that she, you know, like you say, <laughs> rewilded, you know, and uh, yeah, and being out there and doing what she wanted to do when she wanted to do. And then, yeah, sometimes having to nudge like, uh, this might not be the best, you know, decision, <laughs> um, you know, for people to continue liking you. So please come back over here. So uh, yeah, that's just wonderful. And uh, thanks so much for that story. And, you know, for me, this whole podcast has been really great and, and really focusing and highlighting, you know, the importance of working together, of, you know, reaching out of people, you know, together in their own expertise, you know, getting things done and also very much shining lights on other beings on this planet in whatever systems they are and whatever environments they are and what is it that we can do, whether it's in one moment or for many, many years, um, what is it that we can do to to make things better for animals, peoples, and the environment? So thank you so much, Dave, for coming onto this podcast. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks, Sabrina. So that was the end of another wonderful podcast. And we all strive for the animals in our care to flourish. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to feel at your best and achieve the excellence in animal care and well-being. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human, animal, and planetary well-being, where you can continue learning and sharing, as well as access many types of resources like live and recorded webinars, self and organizational care strategies, as well as the Earth Charter and Sustainable Development Goal resources. 
And like you, we are committed to well-being, care and respect for animals, peoples, the greater community of life and this beautiful planet we share. If you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today. 